0: We have the privilege this morning to return in our Bibles to our study of the book of Revelation. We have been going through this study. It's been my continual prayer that this study will enrich our collective hearts as a body of Christ here in New England as we see all that God has for the future of our world. It's a constant challenge really for me to come before you every Sunday and attempt in our study to show you all the richness that is here in this great book, although while knowing that without the power and illumination of the Holy Spirit, we will be left with nothing but confusion, really, without the Holy Spirit in our lives, without God illumining our minds to understand all that He has in His Word, We are left with nothing but black words on a white page that are meaningless and really, in one sense, wondering whether it's true at all. And I also know that we are not under any delusion to think that we fully understand all that is here. In fact, we could spend the rest of our days on this earth Going back to the book of Revelation over and over and over and over again. And we would still not have examined or exhausted the depth of the mind of God concerning these last things. And in our study we have actually learned much about God. We have learned much about His character We have learned about the reality of God's holiness, reality that God is in fact a holy God. In him there is no darkness at all, as it says in 1 John, and God must out of his righteousness and according to his holiness and his promises to his people, he must deal with sin, he must ultimately vanquish the power of sin and the power of death, and his righteousness will reign forever and ever and ever. This is our God. This is the God we just sang about. The last time that we came to this text, I ended with words From the writer of Hebrews. And those words were this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There are plenty of things in the world that mankind may tend to fear. Fear. There are wars in our world and we see them even as we speak today. Even the nation of Israel is on the attack because of people attacking them. Countries around the world are in wars and have been in wars and people fear those wars. There are natural disasters that happen in our world from tsunamis to earthquakes to blizzards to hurricanes to cyclones to all kinds of things that take place in our world and people fear them every day there are threats of terrorism we've seen our own country faced with those kinds of threats and In the days even following 9-11, churches were filled with people who feared death and feared terrorism. There's scares of biological outbreaks in our country. And even today in our own country, we see hidden diseases, hidden viruses that have been vanquished from really the populace of the world found in a closet. Hidden for years Unbeknownst to mankind, all of that stirs up fears in the hearts of men of biological disease, biological outbreaks around the world, fears that are stirred through potential economic collapse. All of those things and many others, mankind fears. Mankind even fears what the future may hold, but nothing is more frightening than to fall into the hands of the living God. Nothing. In fact, God's wrath is unstoppable. Wars end, disasters come and go, biological disease is taken over and eradicated terrorism is quieted down, but the wrath of God is unstoppable. His vengeance is unrelenting, and in our study of the future in the book of Revelation, we have seen plenty of it on display. In fact, beginning all the way back in chapter 4 and chapter 5, with the throne of God as the background, the Lamb of God begins to open up the seals of the divine deed to the earth. And the judgments of God begin to fall. And of course, following after that, in, in somewhat rapid, telescoping kind of fashion, the seven sealed judgments give way to the seven trumpets of judgment by which God clearly shows that heaven is at war with the prince of the power of the air, the one who is at work in the sons of disobedience, all of sinfulness. And the final three trumpets of God are pronounced as three woes. Three divine woes. In fact, back in chapter 8 and verse 13, it says, And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Impending doom is coming. That's the the cry of heaven. That's the cry of the angelic host as they are there about to blow the trumpets. And then the fifth and the sixth trumpet are blown. And with the seventh trumpet, the heavenly temple of God is opened, And this temple becomes then the backdrop for the outpouring of the seven bulls of judgment that bring the tribulation to their very end. Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, says this, just as a reminder to us, and the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks. To you, O Lord God, the Almighty, who who art and who was, thou hast uh, taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and the wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to the bondservants of the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. This temple scene is is both dramatic and it is awesome. Awesome. And there's a very seriousness that is here in its description as John is seeing it. And John is is describing all that he's seeing for us. And it is this heavenly temple, this, this dramatic and awesome and serious scene that sets the backdrop for the final agony to come upon the earth. Follow along as I read chapter 15 for us. This is where we pick up from where we left off last time. John says, and I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, you king of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked. And the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. The seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Make no mistake about it, it is a great reality to us as believers in Jesus Christ to have access to God. That God is our Father and that we can go to God with the cry of a heart of a child, Abba, Father. God is approachable to His children. But there is coming a day. There is coming a day in the very near future where God will no longer be approachable by those who reject Him. There is coming a day when God will be in His unapproachableness. And we read the words, what we know to be in our Bible as chapter 15. But the reality is that chapter 15 cannot be separated from chapter 16. These two chapters go together. They are part of the same scene. And they are describing for us what we heard about back in chapter 8. The last woe to come upon the earth. These are the bowl judgments and they are the judgments of the final trumpet. Contained within the final trumpet are the seven bowls. Just as was contained in the seventh seal were the seven trumpets. And so these are the climax of, of all of the judgments of God that have been poured out upon the tribulation time. And before those judgments are unleashed in chapter 16, John gets to see the stage set. John arrives by God's grace at the divine stage of God, and God sets the stage before John so he can see and we can see all that is about to come in chapter fifteen. I want us to see four aspects that John observes, four aspects I was thinking through this as I was studying saying how how can I explain this to our folks lord how how can I get this in some kind of clear way? And and sometimes that's the struggle of my week. I, I try to come up with some way, try to draw from the text some way in which we can go away with an understanding of what's happening so that we don't go away and get in our cars and say, boy, I don't have any clue of what was being talked about today. I want us to go away at least with some sense of understanding of what is happening. And sometimes it's difficult for me to put it in terms so that you can get it. And yet here it seems... So simple, and yet I struggled so hard. But there's four aspects that I want us to observe in this, and that we'll just draw them simply from the text as we walk through these. I'll give them to you before we start. They're this. The sign in heaven is the first aspect. The sign in heaven, verse one. In verse two, we'll have the sea in heaven. The sea. Third, we'll have the song in heaven, verses 3 and 4. And then the fourth, the sanctuary in heaven. I love how God does that. These are the four aspects that we'll just simply walk through and observe together. Let's begin to see them as we begin here this morning. First, the sign in heaven, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven. This is now the third time that John has said this. Remember, back when we started to see this, back in chapter 12, we spent a little time on this whole idea of sign, this word it's, it's It's not to be a word that confuses us. This is simply a directional aid. That's what a sign is. We drive out here, out this, out even our parking lot, there's a sign out there that says, do not enter. That's a directional aid that says, we don't, don't go out that way. It's not the way to go out. There's another way to go out. That's all this is. A sign is a, a helpful marker, a, a directional aid for us something to tell us the proper path, the direction to travel, something to tell us how to accomplish something or how to understand something. And that's what this is. This is another sign. That's why I've entitled this entire series that we've been in since chapter 12, verse 1, Signs in heaven, Signposts in the Heavens. And we saw previously the sign of the woman. Remember that? Back in chapter 12 and verse 1, we understood the woman to be that symbolic A picture of national Israel. She was a sign. She's that directional aid that helps us understand. We understand that to be national Israel. And the text directed our understanding to the history and the future of Israel as Satan has worked to attack them and trouble them because of Satan's hatred of God and hatred of the promises of God. And then John saw a second sign. We saw that in chapter 12, verse 3. second sign was the great red dragon. We understand the great red dragon from the text to even be Satan himself. But here the sign is more composite. In other words, the sign is just not contained here in verse 1. It's a composite of both verse 1, verse 2, and verses 3 and 4, and the outworking of those things In the rest of the verses of chapter 15. And all of those things point us in the direction of the heavenly temple. So verses 1, 2 through 4 point us in the direction of verse 5. When he looks and the heavenly temple is there again. The final seven angels are coming out of this temple as they are poised to dispense the wrath of God. So the meaning is clear. The punishment of sin and death in keeping with the holiness of God that no longer will be denied and no longer will be delayed. God's wrath is coming and the final wrath is upon us and it is at this point In this day in which God becomes unapproachable for all those who rebel against Him. This is a fear-filled day. John says, I saw another sign. Notice, great and marvelous. The sign is both important and... And the sign is awe-inspiring. It's megas. It's great. That means massive. And I think massive here, John's saying it's, it's that important. This is of huge importance to us. And it is thalmaston. That's where we get the word amazement or uh, amazed. It, it is uh, overwhelmingly uh, amazing. It is massively shocking. That's the picture that John is saying. I saw another sign in heaven and this was overwhelmingly, massively shocking to me. What is the last wrath of God? The final wrath of God. John says, there are seven angels who have seven plagues. Here we go again. More angels. We've seen a lot of angels through the book of Revelation. We go all the way back into the first chapters of Revelation and there are groups of angels that are doing things. We saw the angels of the seven churches back in chapter 1. group of angels specifically tasked with a Specific part of the plan of God as they are carrying it out under the, under the authority and dispatchment of God. There were seven angels that blew seven trumpets. Now, this is another group. They aren't one of those previous groups. They're not the seven angels of the churches. They're not the seven angels that blew the seven trumpets. These are an entirely new group of angels who have been standing ready all the time, waiting for their assignment, and what distinguishes them from the others is their seven plagues. These are seven angels who have seven plagues, which are the last, the final. In these ones, God's wrath is completely complete. You need to understand something about these judgments. Because they are described here, at least in our English vernacular, as plagues. But we cannot think of them as plagues like we would normally think of a plague as an ongoing disease. Like the black plague of years gone past or some other plague of disease that's not the word here it's not what the word means the word here carries more the idea of a of a wound or or a a, a strike upon something that causes injury these are the seven angels who have the the seven last strikes of god it's Something that's instantaneous. Something that's very quick. Like the the wound that might come upon you if you were struck with a sword or with some kind of, of instrument. It's very quick. So when we think about the bold judgments, you need to think of them as these rapid fire succession of blows from the very reality of God. And as we look in chapter 16, in the uh, next time we're here, we'll see them being poured out in that way. These bold judgments come one right after the other as if they're just blow after blow after blow. I don't believe it's going to take a long time for this to happen. It may take days, it may take just a few hours. These are rapid blows. These plagues are the direct divine action on sin and upon sinners. And they are called the last plagues because there is no other need for any more. Notice verse 1, it says, because in them the wrath of God is finished. These seven angels have the last seven plagues because in these the wrath of God is complete. In fact, over in chapter 16 and verse 17, notice when the seventh angel pours out his bowl upon the air, a loud voice comes out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. It is done. Why is it done? Why is it done once the final bowl is poured out? Because in them the wrath of God is finished. In these final rapid fire blows from the divine sword of God, the wrath of God is fully complete. His plan and his purposes have come to their fruition. It isn't as if God just merely ceases. It isn't possible that it's over today and, in the, and, and then in some time later the wrath of God will continue again. This is the reality that the whole idea of these final blows is that the wrath of God has reached its intended goal, they are finished. They're done. God's purpose has been accomplished. We might even say it this way What God has planned finally becomes history. What God has planned finally becomes history. So, what we see here is something that is very deadly. These are the final ones. They are the worst and the most severe. These are the final plagues that will be the final public demonstration of the wrath of God. And they are the deadliest that God could send. That's the sign in heaven. That's what John begins to see. Is in any wonder, he says, marvelous and great. Great and marvelous. Massively huge, overwhelmingly amazing. Second, he says, this, there's a this second aspect, the sea in heaven. The sea in heaven, verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed With fire. I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. You can stop right there for a moment because now this is the the second aspect that John sees this sea of glass. By the way, you might remember in your own thinking as you think back to our study of Revelation, this is the second time we've seen this sea. In the new heaven and new earth, by the way, there is no sea. If you really have love for the ocean don't expect that in the new heaven and the new earth and there is currently this kind of symbolic sea in heaven it is not water of course but it is a described here as a sea I think because of its massiveness but we've seen this before back in chapter four let me just read it for us John says after these things that is after the letters to the churches after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things and immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Remember, the backdrop for all of this was the throne room. Now it's the temple in chapter 15. John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne, 24 thrones. And upon those thrones, I saw 24 elders... And those 24 elders were sitting, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. And the throne from there proceeded flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, and the seven lamps of of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. In the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. So you have in chapter 4 the description around the throne this, this crystal sea. We've even heard that term in songs that we sing some of the older hymns. So in, in chapter 4 you have John seeing as the backdrop in relationship to the throne of God. Before the throne uh, is this crystal sea, this, this sea of glass as, you, as it were. And you know crystal, crystal is a, is a cut glass and, and you shine light through it and it shines the light in all kinds of varying ways and, and with all kinds of brilliance. And so there's this this sense in which around the throne, under the throne, this sea of glass That's shining out the brilliance of God. Chapter 15, John says, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. Mixed with fire. John is now looking at the heavenly realm in reference to the temple. It's no longer with the, the throne as the backdrop. Now the temple is the backdrop that John is seeing here. And it, it's all in relation to that. And, and this is the same sea that he's seeing. The same sea that he saw in chapter 4 in, the, in reference to the throne he's seeing here now in reference to the temple. Uh, but it's from a different perspective. And, and the sea is mixed, as it were, with fire, he says. John's, John's working. He's, he's working his pen. He's trying to describe what he sees. And he's using terms to to draw a picture in our minds. The sea of glass in chapter 4 is that that crystal glass. That clear and pure reality. Representing, I think, the righteousness of God. As God sits on his own righteousness, if you will. Here in chapter 15, it's mixed with fire. Fire. Interesting terminology, fire often when attributed to God or or with God, it is His judgment that is born out of His holiness. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a consuming fire, it says in Scripture. In other words, the judgment of God's holiness consumes like fire consumes. Fire is insatiable. It will not be satisfied. Every time you throw something else in the fire, it will eat it up. And you continue to do that, that fire will never subside. And so John here in verse 2 is seeing the commingling, I believe, of God's holiness with His righteousness. The very righteousness of God and the very holiness of God commingling and it is working itself out the purposes of God upon the sin-stained earth. You say, how so? Listen, God's purposes require both righteousness and His holiness. Why? Because it takes both His holiness and His righteousness for anyone to stand before God. And notice what verse 2 says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast, and from His image, and from the number of His name, standing on the sea of glass. Holding hearts of God. Here you have people. From the tribulation. Standing before God. Victorious. Over the sinfulness of men. And the only way they are standing before God. Is the commingling of the righteousness and holiness of God. To allow them to be able to stand before him. The only way. To stand before the throne of God and not be consumed by God is to come to Him by means of His righteousness and by means of His holiness. And here John sees those who have been vindicated by God's righteousness and by God's holiness through Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? It doesn't even mention Christ here. How, How do you know they're standing there because of Jesus Christ? Because notice in verse 2 that these are those who during the tribulation have died for their faith in Christ. They came off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name. That word from in the original language is a small little preposition, ek. It means out from. They have come out from that. They, they did not succumb to that. They, only ones who will not succumb to that are those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have come off victorious during the tribulation are saved people those who have believed in Jesus Christ during that time, they were victorious over the beast. They were victorious over bowing down to his image. Remember, that's what the Antichrist wants, all to bow down to him. They want all to follow after the beast. They want all to even have his number upon them. They have come victorious beyond that. They did not take the name of the beast or his number. These saints stood apart. They stood out as different. They refused to cave into the threats of the world. And they died for it. Their reward was death. Is it any wonder that in chapter 14, verse 13, the voice from heaven writes, blessed our The dead who die in the Lord from now on. Their labors are done. Even though their victory came in the form of martyrdom, they are victorious. Millions upon millions will succumb to the Antichrist. Millions upon millions will believe upon him. They will bow to his image. Throngs of people across the world will accept the worldly advantage to take on his name or number upon them so that they might not miss out on the economics of the day. But these saints stood apart. They stood as different. They refused to cave into the threats. None of us are really ever challenged like that. No one's pointing a gun to our head and saying, recant, don't follow Jesus Christ or you will right now die. No one's ever saying that to us. That day may come, I don't know, but the fact of the matter is we succumb to very much less than that and sometimes don't stand for Christ. They were massacred for their faith. John sees them standing before the throne of God. It's only by the righteousness of God, it's only because of the holiness of God to carry out His wrath upon Jesus Christ for their sin in which they forsake their own lives in order to embrace Jesus Christ and even cost their own life that they would be standing before God and the throne of God as triumphant. What a glorious picture of these tribulation saints to us. What a glorious reality that there will even be some during that heinous and horrible time who will stand for Christ. What a gospel-presenting message their life will be to all who are watching, even possibly in families where a wife believes and a husband doesn't and she is murdered right before him because of her faith. Or vice versa, or the kids are taken away because you proclaim Jesus Christ and if you proclaim Jesus Christ, we're taking your kids This is the kind of time that they're going to live in and notice this is an amazing thing to me. they have harps they have the harps of God you say why the answer is simple because they sing because they sing. this is the song in heaven you had the 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 sign in heaven the the sea in heaven which is these glorious people standing uh, on the the Holiness and righteousness of God that surrounds him, his very personhood in the heavenly realm. And they are singing. Notice verses 3 and 4. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb. This is incredible. These are redeemed saints and they are praising God. I want to say something to us. That's what the redeemed do. The redeemed praise God because they're redeemed. They are praising God for their redemption. And it says they are singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. You say, what is that? Well, let me show you what the song of Moses is that's being referred to here. Turn back in the Old Testament where we find Moses, go back all the way to Exodus chapter 15. I know some of you Bible scholars were thinking we were going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, certainly it is called the Song of Moses, but more it's there attributed to a sermon than a song. But Here in Exodus chapter 15, we hear the first song. Of Moses. We know who Moses is for sure. Revelation 15 calls him the bond servant of God, the one who was a, an, a servant of God no matter the cost. And that is what Moses was. He was God's servant who was called by God to lead the people of Israel out of their captivity under the oppression of the Egyptians to the promised land, and that is exactly what Moses did. Of course, Moses sinned in the wanderings of the desert. He himself wasn't able to go into the promised land. Joshua took them in as the successor, but Moses did what he was supposed to do. And in doing that, they came upon what seemed to be an insurmountable obstacle the Israelites, as Moses was drawing them, when God was drawing them, I should say, out of Egypt under the hand of Moses, they were fleeing, they came upon an insurmountable obstacle, or what seemed to be, and that was the Red Sea. All of the horrific plagues that came upon Egypt, Pharaoh succumbed to it and released the Hebrew people. And when they arrived at the Red Sea, the Red Sea is in front of him, mountains on both sides. And Pharaoh by then had changed his mind and he started pursuing them. And so Moses stands by the sea. God works a miracle. Parts the waters, the people go right through the Red Sea on dry land. And Pharaoh and his army is drowned behind them. So all the Jewish people who are standing on the other side, having walked through those waters on dry land, once again realizing that God had miraculously delivered them, that he had redeemed them from the, the Egyptians, that they were now safe, they sang a song sang a song of praise to God, and we have it here recorded in chapter 15, and it reads like this. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rise up against you. You do send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. And at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you did blow with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In the loving kindness you have led your people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to thy holy habitation. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them by the greatness of your arm. They are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord. Until your people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. You see, this is a song about victory. This is a song about the greatness of God to deliver His people. It is about the righteousness of God. It is about the holiness of God. It is about God working out His righteousness and holiness in acts against sinful men. When you go back to Revelation chapter 15, and it says these servants of God through the tribulation sing the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, they sing about the very same things. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God. The Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, you King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, the glory and glorify your name? The answer to that is absolutely no one. Philippians says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you. Why? Because your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, this is the song of Moses. This is the essence of the song of Moses. All that we read in in Exodus chapter 15, condensed down to a few verses. This is about praising God for His redemption. It says, they also sung the song of the Lamb. You realize we've already heard that song. I think that was sung back in chapter 5 of Revelation. Back in chapter 5 after the seals have been opened, when, or when Jesus takes the book, the four living creatures in verse 8, and the 24 elders fall, fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And then the angels break in, and the living creatures and the elders, myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands of angels, saying with a loud voice, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And they continue on, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. You see, that too is a song of redemption. A song of praise to God for redeeming mankind through Jesus Christ. Redeeming those who would believe through Jesus Christ. Just like these in verse 2 who have paid with their very life through the tribulation are standing before God, holding the harps of God, playing the beautiful music and singing to God the song of redemption. The song of Moses hails the... Execution of God's enemies. The glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Song of the Lamb deals with the same things. Christ has come, He has paid with His own blood, He has endured the very wrath of the Father upon Himself so that those whom He would save would be saved. God's faithfulness, God's deliverance of His own and God's judgment of the ungodly are all praised in the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. It's no different than what we're seeing here. Once again, these words great and marvelous are there. John is saying, listen, they're extolling the various things that I saw, this awesome, overwhelming, absolutely striking event that's about to take place. So here is a celebration of God's delivering power. You'd think that they'd be going, oh my goodness, wait till this happens. Like, oh, I can't watch this. This is going to be way too much. No, they're standing there singing, praising God for redemption. Same redemption that was first sung at the Red Sea as the people of Israel were praising God and now demonstrated in the tribulation through the power of Jesus Christ. What a picture. What a picture. You have the the sign, the sea, the song, now the sanctuary in heaven, the sanctuary. Notice what he says in verse 5. And after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. We need to stop there just for a moment. Tabernacle simply means a dwelling place. The tabernacle on earth, the tent of meeting that Israel even carried through the desert was was a dwelling place. It was the dwelling place for God when God was with Israel. It had an inner sanctuary and it had a a very internal sanctuary called what we know to be the Holy of Holies. Here John sees the the temple of the tabernacle, the the dwelling place of the testimony of, of heaven right this tabernacle of testimony what is the the dwelling place of testimony the testimony equals the law of god what was the the testimony uh, in the time when israel came out of of egypt Moses went to mount sinai and he received what the ten commandments the law of god and where did they keep the law of god the ark of the covenant The Ark of the Covenant, it was the dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant or for the law of God. And so the tabernacle of testimony is just another name for the Ark of the Covenant. John says, and after these things I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Where was the the Ark of the Covenant kept in the tabernacle? It was in the Holy of Holies. John is looking now straight into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly realm. Verse 6 says, And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their breasts with golden girdles. By the way, just for your curiosity, if you think I'm making up that whole thing about testimony and Ark of the Covenant, you can look in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. It's called that. The tabernacle of testimony is called the Ark of the Covenant in that verse. And here in verse 6, the seven angels come out right out of the very presence of God. The executioners of God's divine plan come right out of the holy of holies where God is. Time for them to act. It's that time. And they are dressed in the brilliance of purity. I think clean and bright just gives us that idea. They are they're unstained by anything. And they are girded around their breasts with this reality of authority. It's what the priest wore. This authoritative uh, clothing that spoke of God's authority. And these angels have that same thing. They are pure, they are unstained, and they have the authority of God. And then verse 7 says, one of the four living creatures, we don't know which one of those. Remember, we saw one's a lion, one's a cow, one was the face of a man. We, One of them, we don't know who, but one of them gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever." And ever, those who have refused now to drink the cup of salvation will now consume the bulls of God's wrath. You refuse Jesus Christ, refuse faith in Jesus Christ, there's only one thing left for you. John 3.36 says, the wrath of God remains upon you. You will drink the wrath of God. And here is the most frightening part. I don't think there's a more frightening verse in all of Scripture than this. Verse 8. The temple was filled with the smoke of the glory of God. That's not unusual to us. When God came to dwell with Israel, He filled the temple. His glory, the smoke of His glory filled the temple. So it's Filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from His power. That's not unusual to us. The temple is consumed with God. He's throughout. And no one, here it is, no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels had finished. This is the most frightening reality in all of Scripture. This is the day God becomes unapproachable. No one is able to enter the temple of God. There is no intervention. There is no stemming off the wrath of God. Hey, wait a minute. There's one more. There's none of that. There is no intercessor here before God. The final note of this passage is all that it says, and it is inescapable, and it is inevitable upon those who continue to reject the Son of God. It's coming. It's coming. One author said it this way, quote, When the smoldering fires of God's wrath arising from his glory and his power are to erupt in volcanic fashion, God is absolutely unapproachable. Unquote. Just like on Mount Sinai when God had Moses there and he said, Make sure nobody comes near this mountain lest they be consumed. Not even an animal, nothing. At that point, Moses was interceding on behalf of the people of Israel. Here, there is no intercessor. God is absolutely unapproachable, and it will not stop until the final blow is given. Job chapter 21, verse 30, Job said, The wicked is reserved for the day of destruction. They shall be brought forth in the day of wrath. God's final wrath is coming. I hope we see that. This is a frightening, frightening passage. The wrath of God has been the thread that has run through all of this book. By the time... We've reached chapter 15. We have become so used to hearing it. We've heard of the seven sealed judgments. And okay, we've heard about that judgment. We've listened and we've even watched the, the judgment poured out of the seven trumpet judgments as they're blown and those specific judgments are unleashed upon the world. We, we've heard that and we say, oh, sealed judgments and trumpet judgments. And we're about to witness now the final future. Chapter 16 is the final future. It is the wrath of God to the place where it is done. It is the final seven bold judgments as they are executed before the return of Christ and the establishment of His earthly kingdom. You see, the blessing for us was that at the cross, the wrath of God was placed upon Jesus Christ because of what He was doing for sinners like us. But in the future, the wrath of God will be placed on sinners because of what they are doing with Jesus Christ. They are rejecting Christ. And so they will bear the full wrath of God upon them. Listen. Today, today, God is still warning and God is still calling people to himself. But the day is coming when that will end. And God will no longer be approachable. There's just one thing I want us to go with here, away with you remember nothing else remember this if you know jesus christ is your savior you have one task and your one task as a believer is to tell people about jesus christ do not wait do not wait that is our task that is why we're here on this earth to share the gospel with others who if they do not know Jesus Christ, if they continue to refuse, will face the full wrath of God and eternity in hell itself. Let's pray. Father, in some ways, I guess this morning we could sit before you and say shame on us. Shame on us as Christians because we oftentimes are not faithful instruments in your hand to share the gospel with others. Each one of these people who give their life even during the tribulation will praise you for the gospel that was given to them through The angels or through the two witnesses or through the 144,000 that are preaching the truth or through some other Christian who's there who has already trusted the gospel, who shares faith with them. They will praise you even though they give their life for the salvation that they have in Jesus Christ. They will praise you for all eternity for the redemption that they have. We, each one here, are grateful to you because someone came to us and someone didn't stop short and say, well, they'll find out at some time. No, someone shared the gospel with us and by your grace you opened our eyes, you opened our heart to receive the truth and we have come to know Jesus Christ by faith. May we be the same faithful witnesses to others who we know so that they might know Jesus Christ. There are no guarantees for tomorrow. and One day, you will be unapproachable until your wrath is finished. Lord, help us never to forget that today is the day of salvation. That you are a consuming fire and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God.